Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You know, there's no, like, you know, if I was a 12-year-old kid showing up at someone's event and making a video of it, that, you know, I often heard from customers, like, this is better than, like, you know, we had a, you know, another event a few years ago and I hired the, you know, the adults, right, you know, like, and this was better, right? And what it kind of made me realize at this very young age is that, you know, we're all just people. Right. right. So you look when you're a kid, you can think about professionals as people who are like experts and their whole lives they've done that thing or they were born a doctor or a lawyer or a you know, TV producer or whatever it is, right? And you realize, no, no, no we're all just people. Mm. We're all just figuring it out on our own. And, so how do and I can do anything like all those other people who I look up to and I'd say like those are professionals, like yeah. at one point they were like me, they didn't know anything about anything, and they for the first time had to figure something out. Among the many business lessons Jeff Lawson has learned, there's this, don't expect to get things done if you wait until you're perfectly prepared. Lawson is co-founder and CEO of Twilio, a company that makes it easy for apps to contact you. Ever wonder how you can send a text to your Uber driver in the app or get one in OpenTable when your seat's ready? Twilio does that. Well, Twilio went public last summer at the New York Stock Exchange and is now worth about $2.5 billion. As it pushes to make apps communicate better, the scrappy San Francisco company has developed a culture that favors boldness and taking initiative and frowns on perfectionism. This is Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. I'm John Fort from CNBC. This is a weekly podcast bringing you the highest achievers from business, entertainment, philanthropy, and sport. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app or Google Play or others. And once you've done that, tell a friend. These talks are definitely conversation starters. I caught up with Tulio CEO at a tech conference in Barcelona, Spain, to talk about his journey from a curious kid in the Detroit suburbs to CEO of a public tech company. Among the things I love about Lawson's story, it's about the setbacks as much as the successes and about learning as you go. Here's Jeff Lawson talking about Twilio and the journey. Now, you aren't San Francisco, born and bred. You're from Michigan. Yeah. Suburbs of Detroit. That's right. Uh, tell me about that. What, what was that like growing up? <laughs> uh, you know, neat environment to grow up. Obviously, it's, it was a suburban, so a rather different environment than uh, you know, a city like San Francisco. But you know, one of the things that was great about, about my growing up is that my parents always encouraged building. Um, you know, I did have a computer. I had my Apple IIe that I, you know, I think I did some, some coding on when I was a kid. Uh, but you know, even just building in that physical sense. Like I remember when I was a kid, I, we, I would build things with my dad. We'd, we'd, we'd tell him, oh dad, I want to build a, a VCR. Build a VCR. Build a VCR. Right? Okay, and we get a cardboard box. Oh, right, right. And we right. draw it, like, the nice. buttons on it. I did an iPad with we'd my kids cut a down, couple of you know, weeks kind of ago. Yeah. Slot, right? And then here's the thing: at the end, we'd like you know make make you know uh, you can't see I'm making the air quotes making a VCR. Um, and at the very end, I'd always say, "Okay, uh, great, Dad. Now we need, now can we make it really work?" <laughs> and my dad would kind of say, "You know, like, I don't know, I don't know how to do that part, right?" And that's what's so cool about software today. Mm. 
is that with the power of software, and this is for kids and adults and everywhere in between, right? You can change the world with a text in, mm-hmm. right? Whenever you build software, it does really work. And you can build a mobile app, and even if you're a, uh, you know, young, but you can build some website, you can build a mobile app, you can put it online, and if it gets traction, like you can have millions of users using an app that you built, because that's the power of software, is it, it can really work. Where and, and this is amazing, I met a Twilio customer just last week in New York, 17 years old, and they're in the top, I think they were number six in the app store for the social category. Hmm. Imagine that. Yeah, that's huge. Where, where did your entrepreneurial spark come from? Because you started your first business in middle school, right? I did. What yeah. were you? What What was the business? So I've always loved technical things, and uh, one of the things that fascinated me was like video, video production, and I wanted the gear. I wanted a, a cool camera, or I wanted to get this gear and learn how to make stuff. But I realized that you know the only way to get this cool gear when you're you know. 12, 13 years old is to earn the money to do it. So I started a company of videotaping special events like weddings, ah. bar mitzvahs, uh, sweet 16s. Were you yeah. actually doing the taping as a middle schooler? I was. I would cut, my dad would drive me. I didn't have a driver's license yet. <laughs> my dad would drive me and, uh, and I would do the videotape. I'd go home and I'd edit it later and deliver them the final product. And uh, that was the first company that I ever started when I was in middle school. It was called Video Visions. What did you learn from that? Did it go well? Yeah, I mean, I, I made money all through middle school, even high school. Um, I, uh, I stopped Got yourself a real VCR? I did eventually. Uh, I didn't make it, though. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, I just learned the value, I think, of, of hard work. But I also realized the value of, you know, there's no, like, here I was. I was a 12-year-old kid showing up at someone's event and making a video of it that, you know, I often heard from customers are like, this is better than like, you know, we had a, you know, another event a few years ago and I hired the, you know, the adults, right? You know, like, and this was better, right? And what it kind of made me realize at this very young age is that, you know, we're all just people. Right. Right. So you look when you're a kid, you can think about professionals as people who are like experts and their whole lives they've done that thing or they were born a doctor or a lawyer or a, you know, TV producer or whatever it is, right? And you realize, no, 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 we're all just people. We're all just figuring it out on our own. So how do I can do anything? Like all those other people who I look up to, and I say like those are professionals. Like at one point they were like me; they didn't know anything about anything, and they, for the first time, had to figure something out. And I've just always taken that approach. My grandfather um, was an amazing guy. He, during the depression, was working in a factory. And he wanted to make more money. He had just gotten married. He wanted to make more money. Do you know what he was making in the factory? He was. Uh, he wasn't making. He was like doing sh- uh, stocking and stuff like that. Right? right. And he wanted to make more money. So he went to the owner and he said, "He's like, I need to make more money. How do I do that?" And the guy said, "I don't have any other jobs. The only job I have is uh, driving the truck." So, do you know how to drive the truck? And my grandfather's answer was, "Give me the keys." And he got this job and he made more money. Now, here's the thing that he didn't tell the boss. He had never driven before in his life. <laughs> Now, I love the fact, first of all, he didn't lie. Right, he said, give me the keys. <laughs> he said, give me the keys, right? <laughs> um, which is such this great value. Give me the keys. It's sort of like, almost like a, a, a lesson that I've internalized. I've actually brought it into Twilio, one of my company, and told people like that story, and that give me the keys mentality. I'm just saying, you know what? Like, we're here to figure it out. And if, like, if we don't figure it out, someone else will. And that's our job. That's what innovators do. And that's what you know, people who want to figure it out. There's no one is going to teach us exactly the things we need to know to be successful. You, use that, you use that how to draw an owl? 
Yeah, it's similar to the draw an owl, right? <laughs> uh, it's this meme that we've really internalized. It's one of our core values of the company, draw the owl. It goes back to this old internet meme. It's been around for years. Yeah. But step one, you know, how to draw an owl. Step one, draw some circles. And it's got the loosely sketched you know, body circle and the head circle. And then it says step two, draw the rest of the owl. Yeah. And it's got a beautifully drawn owl. And the joke is, I mean, it's funny, but the joke is, you know, of course, you have to figure out everything that you know, happens in the middle. But that's a parallel for, for business and for life, right? Which is that no one is going to just teach you exactly. Like, life is not a paint-by-number ordeal. Right. We have to figure it out. So how did you, as a middle schooler, maybe even before, learn how to produce professional-level stuff? And how does that method influence how you went on to do everything else? Yeah, I mean, well, obviously I had a, I had a good uh, start. I had a lot of you know, privilege in my growing up that you know, I had a family that could afford to get like my first things. As like, you know, my 13 years old, I got a gift was my first camera. Uh, and that was enough to get started. And my dad had done a little bit of like video editing and stuff. I think that's how I got the bug. So yeah. he taught me the basics of it. Uh, but then I took it from there and just kept learning and kept doing it more. And just by repetition, right, you get better and better. And so I started. I'm sure those first ones weren't great. And I don't think I charged very much to those first clients. Uh, maybe it was even free. Uh, but that's how I got started. I remember my first job building software. Um, was, uh, how old were you? Uh, it was a freshman year in college. Okay. So, uh, you know, I was, you know, whatever, how old are you in college? 19. And a friend of mine's dad had a small software company in Detroit. They made software for these big industrial printers. And the web had just come around. This is 1996. And they needed a web interface for it. And so my friend hooked me up and I talked to him about uh, building this web interface for their big industrial printing software there. And the, and the guy says, oh yeah, you're like, so what do you know about web development? I'm like, well, you know, what do you need? And he says, well, I need it built in Delphi. And I wrote down my number one, Delphi. Uh, and then he says, I need it to be a SQL backend. And I'm writing down SQL. And I like, I had no idea what these things were. <laughs> I was just writing them down, writing them down. I said, oh yeah, it should be fine. You know, let me get back to you in a week with an estimate. I went out and I, just, and I was like, looked up all those things, figured out what it would take and, and built it. And again, it's that draw, it's that, you know, draw the owl or, or give me the keys mentality, which yeah. is the best way to learn something new is to commit yourself to doing it. Yeah. Now, you also took what a lot of people would see as a big risk and took four years off of college to follow your entrepreneurial dreams. What was it that convinced you to do that? And why did you go back? Because a lot of, you know, a lot of tech founders, it's like, oh, I left college at whatever point. And then they don't go back. Yeah, you know, I started my my uh, my first, let's say, venture-funded uh, company or my first, you know, kind of bigger company uh, when I was an undergraduate uh, in school. Um, it was a lecture note company for college students, and you know, first we had started it as a side project, mostly because I just wanted to play around with this brand new thing called the internet. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating new technology, and again, what better way to force yourself to figure it out than to say, let's start a company and like build a product. And so we built this product, Lecture Notes for College Students. And um, in the course of uh, building that, we kind of got a lot of traction. We started at the University of Michigan, which is where I was in school. And we expanded it out to a few more campuses. And then an advisor said, you know, this is a really neat idea. But this is, this is like 1998 at this point. Right. And he said, you know, this internet thing is hot. Like, you know, companies are getting started. This internet's brand new. It's taken off. Like, are you, you know, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to build a company with this idea that you have. Uh, 
University of Michigan is going to be around forever, roughly. <laughs> uh, but you know, the opportunity to build an internet company now is the time. And so we said, you know what? Let's do that. So we ended up raising some money, raising angel money, and then a venture round. Uh, How did you do that as a college student? Because <laughs> there wasn't as much of a roadmap back then. That's when people were kind of doing that in the dot-com era for the first time. How did you figure out how to do and, it? And from Michigan, right? Right. Yeah, you know, we raised a, a round from friends and family uh, with this idea of saying, hey, we're going to build this service for college students. And, uh, you know, we believe that uh, we'll have a great advertising uh, play, which was the revenue model. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, at that point in time, a lot of people wanted to invest. I mean, the Internet was, was brand new. There was a tremendous amount of excitement. Obviously, there was a little too much excitement uh, in retrospect. But um, you know, we actually didn't have that much trouble just going to people who essentially wanted to, to be a part of this brand new thing called the internet. Uh, and then our, that was our angel round, and then our venture round. We made trips out to Silicon Valley, and we had traction at that point. And what year is that? 99. Okay, you're yeah. running out of time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> nobody knew it. Yeah, no, we raised, we raised yeah. uh, much money, about, I think, $10 million. And, um, Moved the whole company from Michigan to Silicon Valley. Right. And um, I hope you sold it within. We actually did. We sold okay. it to a competitor of ours uh, for stock, though. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, I was right there with you. <laughs> but it was, uh, it was. I mean, it was a wild dot com. I mean, we literally yeah. went from the dorm room to like raising money at a twenty-five million dollar valuation to selling it for hundred million dollars to our the company that acquired us being bankrupt a few months later. Yeah. But that whole thing in like you know twenty-four months roughly. It was an insane ride. But it was uh, what a what a you know, rocket boosters on a entrepreneurial career uh, that we were able to learn so much in that short period of time uh, as such young people that I then took a lot of those lessons forward. And you went back to Michigan. I did. Uh, I, I did a few things first, but at one point I realized that my credits that I had already paid for at the university uh -huh. were going to disappear. They were going to expire. And I said, you know what? It's free education. And it was a good time in my career. Like it's a good time to take a break. And uh, and I was like, you know. I'm not going to turn down free education. Tell me about maybe bouncing back. I imagine the end of that ride, if you're you know, in your early 20s, feeling like I've got this company worth 25, ah, 100 million to the acquirer goes bankrupt. That must be hard, especially if you raised money from friends and family who were also counting on this whole thing to well, happen. Well, you know, I always told them don't count on, you know, angel right. investments but pe for anything, but yeah. sure. But, you know. You know for, for me, um, well, first of all, it was it was an amazing experience to be able to, to, at such a young age, get to be a part of that whole, that process, not only of company building, and I've been an entrepreneur, but not really anything at that kind of scale, uh, to be able to build a company, do the fundraising, I've never done fundraising before. Um, hire a bunch of people, you know, things I'd done entrepreneurially before that had been just me, not hiring a bunch of people. So yeah, we had to figure out a whole lot of stuff, but it was a, it was a great ride. And then, you know, you think, you think, you know, how life is going to play out. Like here I am, everyone's saying, oh, you know, you're the dorm room genius who's got the thing. And, I, and you're like, you start to believe it and then suddenly it's not true. And you think you know how life is going to play out because, you know, it just seems like such a kind of a, the storybook entrepreneurial tale of Silicon Valley. And then it all falls apart and you realize, you know, this is just life. You never know what it's going to give you. And you have to, you know, hope for the best, expect the worst and roll with, roll with what happens. When did that perspective come and how did you get it? I imagine it didn't come immediately. You know, it, it was, there wasn't some like, you know, there wasn't some 
process of grieving, I would say. <laughs> it all was very natural. So it became, some they, they sort of unfold <laughs> over time so you can acclimate yourself to what's happening. Uh, but ultimately, you know, you just roll on your, your next thing. Plus, it was almost you know, like a natural disaster, right? It wasn't like it was just you affected. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, the dot-com meltdown was like an, a yeah, major right? global story. And, you know, and in retrospect, as you're looking at it, you're like, yeah, kind of makes sense, right? Uh, the company that acquired us was spending way too much money for, 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 for where they were, and, you know, they ran into the wall. But, you know, right around that time, you know, one door opens, one door closes, another opens, right? Classically, right? That was right when two friends of mine were starting StubHub. They said, hey, we have this idea for a new business and, um, uh, to, to enable a secondhand marketplace for live event tickets. And uh, they both were bankers and they had never operated a company before. They said, would you like to, you know, you just built this startup, you just built a technology team, you scaled it up, like, we want to come do that again for us. And I said, sure. And so it's sort of a natural way to say, like, yep, I just learned a lot. Let me go apply what I learned to something new. And, uh, and that's kind of the way I've always, always looked at it. I mean, the, 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 the best thing that we have as we go through our careers is our knowledge and our, and our work, mm. our reputation, right? And if you are constantly building those two things, I think, generally speaking, you know, good things end up happening to people. And what did you get out of the StubHub experience? Biggest thing I learned, you know, neat experience, great business, doing incredibly well. Um, but I realized that it wasn't the product for me to be putting my blood, sweat, and tears into. Why? So as an entrepreneur, I mean, you've got, you just put so much into building a business. And I wasn't the customer for that product. I wasn't a concert goer. Okay. Yeah, I didn't go to a lot of concerts. You weren't passionate about events. it. It was just like, it was like e-commerce of another thing. Right. Um, and it was a fine business, but I wasn't the customer and I didn't feel passionately that the world needed the product we were building. Um, I didn't think it was bad. I just wasn't passionate about it. It wasn't viscerally great. And for, as an entrepreneur, I think you need that. I think you need to feel passionate and have this visceral feeling about the world needs. And it's not to say everything that every entrepreneur builds is like world changing or you know, saving the earth, but you do need to feel like the customers you're serving, you've made a small part of their life better because of the thing that you're building. And that's what gets you through the, the, the long nights and the you know, sleeplessness and the, all the stress and things like that, right? Is that belief that ultimately for your customers, the world will be better if you succeed in building what you want to build. And so I realized I didn't really have that kind of passion for StubHub, which ultimately is what made me uh, decide to move on and work on other things. Um, and that's been, I think, one of the most valuable lessons I've learned along the way, is that you have to be passionate. Um, and you have to have that visceral, feel that visceral need for the product you're building in order to really do your best work. So what did you do next? Uh, after that, I went and started, of all things, a bricks and mortar retailer for extreme sporting goods. <laughs> and I uh, am not a participant in extreme sports. I'm not a skateboarder, I'm not a, a surfer, I'm not a snowboarder. Um, and so, despite what I just said to you about the right. I would you believe it? I made the same mistake again. Okay. And it took me a couple of years and I realized that I made that same mistake. Now, what got you to make that mistake? What convinced you, I'm not into extreme sports, but I'm going to do it? Um, we had researched a lot of different interesting ideas for technology companies we could start. But strangely enough, the one that myself and my co-founders all agreed on uh, was a good business opportunity, was um, creating a category killer retailer for extreme sporting goods, sort of being like an REI is for hiking, climbing, and camping, uh -huh. while doing it for the extreme, the next game sports of skateboarding, snowboarding, surfing. You know, we always said REI is for granola eating, uh, ours are Pop-Tart eating sports. <laughs> and um, so it just seemed like a good business opportunity. It was a $30 billion market, 
sorry, six, uh, sorry, it was a $16 billion market growing at 30% year over year in the early 2000s. I mean, it was just sort of like, these big things, and there was no retailer with any significant presence. And so it just sounds like one of these like business school looking, I've never been to business school, I assume that's what they do there. Uh, you know, <laughs> one of these business school looking like, you know, classic good business opportunities. Um, and I was a little hesitant, but then I thought about it and I was like, you know what, this is an opportunity to build some very interesting technology. You know, how many retailers start up with no legacy, no baggage in, you know, 2000s and get to use technology to make them run great, make great customer experiences, uh, be operationally tight. Uh, and so I thought that was an interesting challenge that I wanted to undertake um, as a technologist. Right. And so we ended up building, we built a point of sale system, we built back of house shipping and receiving, we built, we built all the systems run the store uh, to really build something that was better than all the off-the-shelf software that was out there. Uh, but at the end of the day, it was still about selling skateboards. And, um, and when I push comes to shove, I was like, you know, I'm not asking about this product. And that's when I went to Amazon uh, where I was one of the first product managers at Amazon Web Services. Yeah. What convinced you to go to Amazon? What did you get out of that experience that helped you to become a better entrepreneur? Yeah, I, I wanted, I had done an entrepreneurial thing multiple times in a row. I wanted to see what it's like at a bigger company. Because I knew as an entrepreneur, if I'm successful, I'm gonna wanna build a larger company one day. And I mean, that's, that's kind of what success means for an entrepreneur, right? Right. But I have no idea what happens at bigger companies. I've never worked at them. I know there's these big tall buildings and the logo at the top, people walk in at nine and they walk out at five and I have no idea what they do in the middle, right? Because I've only been a part of like relatively small startups where it's just, you know, everyone does what like is absolutely on fire that day. <laughs> and uh, that's about it, right? Um, and I realized that part of my entrepreneurial toolkit should be learning from a great company. So I had a short list of companies that I thought that you know, met my criteria of what a great company was and ended up going up to Seattle to go to Amazon. And um, interestingly enough, speaking to the passion thing, it was my first opportunity to build products for developers. Hmm. Which again, I was a developer. This is my, you know, I love writing code. And so it was right in my wheelhouse of things I thought were, were, were really serving a customer that I knew and understood, you know, myself as a developer, but also that this new form of platform and infrastructure and service would be really valuable to helping developers to move even faster build even better software. That's why it was so exciting to be there. How did you know when it was time to leave and start Twilio? I had the entrepreneurial itch. I enjoyed my time at Amazon, bigger company, learned a lot, but I just felt that it was my time to return to my entrepreneurial roots and to start something new. How did that end up being a thing? How did Twilio the, end up being Twilio, the thing? Twilio, yeah, well, I looked around at a lot of different ideas of what I wanted to do next. Uh, and one of the things that I realized was that all three of my previous companies had two things in common. First was that every one of those companies, we were using the power of software to beat our competition. The power of software being your ability to iterate fast, mm -hmm. ship something quickly, learn from your customers, better understand their needs update, you know, build the next iteration, and do that roughly every two weeks. That's the nature of agile software. And that you could continually iterating your way towards the perfect solution. And that's the superpower of software, that okay. iterative spirit. But the second common thread of all those three companies was at one point or another, we needed great communications in order 
to have that great customer experience. Great communications. Tell me, some way in which our software, our company, needed to interact with our end users. Okay. And every time we had ideas about how to build a great customer experience that involved communications, we'd say, okay, well that's neat, but we don't know anything about communications. Right? We're software developers. Making a phone ring is magical as far as I'm concerned, right? <laughs> and so we turn to the communications industry and we say, okay, how are we supposed to build this, this idea that we have? And the communications industry would always say a similar thing. They'd say, hey, you know, we can help you with that. You know, first you're gonna run up one of these copper wires from the carrier to your data center, and then step two, you're gonna rack up a bunch of telco gear in your in that data center, and then you're gonna bring in a bunch of professional services people, because that gear was never designed to do this idea that you had. Uh, we're gonna bring in this small army of professional services to come and bang it into submission and, and get it to do what you wanna do. We think we can make it work. It'll cost about $2 million, and it'll take 24 months to implement. Hmm. And in every one of those companies, I remember having the same reaction. First of all, two million bucks for this like part of my customer experience. I'm like, I don't have the money to spend on that. But even if I did, let's say I was some big enterprise and I had the money to spend on that. Uh -huh. The most offensive part of this was the time. Two years before a customer would ever get their hands on the thing, this idea. Two years before I'd know if the idea was any good. Right. Right? And then no ability to iterate on it thereafter because all the professional services people back up and go home. <laughs> right? And so this whole idea that you'd spend two years to deploy version one and have no idea if customers were getting value out of it was insane to a software person like myself who's used to shipping every two weeks. And I came to realize that the communications industry is diametrically opposed to that ethos of software. I mean, if you think about it, right, they probably should be, right? Because for 100 years, they've been digging trenches in the ground and launching satellites and building towers and all this stuff, right? High-risk, high-reward activities that you're going to do very slowly and very planfully. Uh, and that's all well and good, but software that sits on top of that infrastructure is moving at a very different pace. Yeah. And the industry had not caught up to that. And so we started Twilio in 2008 to solve that problem of bring communications out of that legacy and hardware and physical networks and into a future which is based in software and empower the software developers of the world to really build the future of communications which is certainly going to be in software. Interesting. So, you strike me as a storyteller. I don't know if that comes from your film and an artistic Sit background. and I shall tell you a tale. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I do like, I, I was a film major in addition to computer science and uh, uh, I do enjoy enjoy that that part of the world how does that play out in the company's culture um, it seems through kind of these nine core values that they tell a sort of story about what Twilio is are you trying to communicate right in the door to employees what the expectations are how does that absolutely. all come together absolutely you know the values of the company are there really to tell everybody how you know how we're going to behave how we're going to work together how is this going to work? Who, who should be here and who shouldn't be here, right? This is how you share those values. And you know, the storytelling- Are there controversial values among those nine that some people go, whoa, what's that about? I think people ask questions, but I think ultimately they, if they are attracted to Twilio, it's because they buy into the, the things that we believe in. Things like that draw the owl notion. Right. Right, which is- Is that the one you get the most questions about? Uh, it's the most not obvious, right? Um, but uh, yeah, you know, we do get questions about that. Um, you know, I think an interesting one, going to your storytelling comment, uh, one of our values is start with why. And uh, there's, it's a, there's a great book by that name as well, which uh, I think was influential in yeah. creating of this value. But um, to us, it's about 
why is the driver behind the decisions we make? And so if you only tell people, like, here's the decisions, right? Here's the thing, right? You're not going to get a lot of buy-in, you're not going to get a lot of understanding. And certainly people can't run, you know, what do you call it, the commander's intent, right? But why is so critical, explaining why we're making the decisions we are, or why, what motivates us, what's the customer problem we're trying to solve? Not what's the solution. Sharing why inside the company is so powerful because that's how you actually express, you know, if you will, the commander's intent. And you free people up to run and use their ideas to figure out how best to answer the problem we're trying to solve because they understand why we're doing it the way we're doing it. Or to take things in a direction you may have never imagined as a leader because the company understands why we're doing things we're doing, not just what we're doing today. And so I've always really liked that, that start with why. And it does often come to this kind of storytelling place of saying, here's the reason why things are the way they are, or here's why we're solving the problem we are, or here's why we do things the way we do them, is because that tells the story of a, of a, of a non-rigid world, Yeah, that you want people to internalize um, what motivates us, what motivates our customers, in order to make the best decisions they can. This year, Uber has been in the headlines quite a bit over its cultural challenges. When you're working on your company's culture, how do you make sure that if something is going on in the organization that you don't agree with, if somebody's getting harassed, if the culture is getting too aggressive, if it's getting too mean, that you know about it and can influence it before it gets ingrained? Yeah, well, let's, say, let's separate, separate the difference between like aggressive. You know, you want your company to think aggressively, you think boldly about what it wants to accomplish. Mm -hmm. But you can separate that from how people work together. And when you cross that line, and you need to define it very clearly, and that's what, you know, you've got employment policy and, and uh, uh, behavioral policy, things like that. Um, sorry, code of conduct, that's what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. um, you take a zero tolerance policy. Nobody gets a buy because they're the high performer, because they're vice president of this or that, right? Nobody gets a buy on things that matter to your code of conduct uh, or your tolerance or how you treat each other. Because that is, um, that sends a powerful signal. If it's tolerated by some, then it'll probably be tolerated by all. Hmm. And that you just can't have that. And I, and I think that's one of the important things you do. A, draw the boundaries around this is, this is the okay behavior, right? This is our values. And this is the not okay behavior. You know, not only is it outside of our values, it's outside of our code of conduct. And you put that in black and white and make sure people understand that, and then you enforce it. Uh, and that's the biggest thing. I mean, probably most companies today have a policy that says, you know, you can't discriminate, you can't, you know, sexual harassment is not, I mean, this is, it's not just company policy, it's the law. Right. But um, every company, I'm sure, has that, but how many of them turn a blind eye, that's the problem. And what you need to do is have that zero tolerance policy. Because okay. that's the difference between, and I feel like it is almost binary. You never have a company where zero tolerance, but if you don't have that, then you'll probably have those bad behaviors. What's your best piece of advice to, uh, to the entrepreneurial middle schooler who's maybe <laughs> looking uh, to follow that path? That'll be my last question. Give me, yeah, give me the keys, right? Just, just think about that, right? People who do some job, who you look up to, right? They, at some point, prior to where they are today, were just like you. 
they didn't, they had their, you know, they, they, they didn't know everything. They didn't, they couldn't do the things they can do today. They weren't confident. They had their own demons, whatever it is. Everybody does. That's just human experience. So you out there, you've got everything it, it, it takes, just like people who you may look up to, you think, oh, I'll never be like that. I'll never be a, a doctor or a lawyer or a, an entrepreneur or the CEO of a company or whatever it is. It's like, nope, everyone who's gotten to where they are had a path to get there, so do you. So just do it, give me the keys. All right, give me the keys, draw the owl. Jeff, thanks. Thank you very much. Man. My thanks to Jeff Lawson. I'm John Ford from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. And please do leave a review if you enjoyed this. And check out Fort Knox Live on Facebook, Twitter, and Periscope, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Next on the podcast, a little something different. Ajit Pai is the new chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, an agency charged with regulating America's communication industries. In the digital era, lots of old limitations are evaporating and new dangers are materializing. That's made his job very controversial. Go ahead and subscribe to Fort Knox now on your iPhone's podcast app or on Google Play. You don't want to miss that. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, or FortKnox.com. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.